Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you need a Bible this morning, we have some located there in the pew rack, and you can find this page on 1,823. Find this text on page 1823. In God's providence today, we come to the next section in the book of Ephesians as we continue to work through this letter that Paul wrote to a church at Ephesus. And this section today has to do with servants and masters. The NIV uses the term slaves and masters. The ESV translates it bond servants, which is a better translation. I'll explain why that is. But because sometimes people can use texts like this to discredit the Christian faith, some have had their hearts wounded because they see or have been told the Bible condones slavery. I think it's important to see this text in its context and to understand as we start, I want to give you four or five disclaimers or foundational statements that I hope will shape what we're going to do with this text. And as Paul meant it in the context for the church at Ephesus. And here's the first thing you need to know. Ephesians chapter 6, these verses 5 through 9, were written to a very different culture and context to our own. And we tend to view the Bible through our local context today instead of as the Bible should be viewed, through which the context in which it was written and the purpose for which it was written and the people to whom it was written. And the slavery and masters talked about in this section in here has almost nothing that's similar to what we understand from our regretful past in this country as the chattel slavery pre-Civil War in which people were owned as property and had zero rights and in which were, in many cases, abused and defied the dignity of being human beings. That's true in our own church context as well. There have been pastors throughout the centuries in the United States and in this church who have condoned slavery, wrongfully so, from texts like this. There have been, uh, in our own regretful past, of, of things we've repented of, even uh, slave quarters in our balcony that would have been justified by texts like this. We continue to repent of that reality. But the, the slaves and masters that Paul is talking about in this text is very much unlike anything that we would understand in America. The bond servants, as would have been called in Paul's days, had varying degrees of legal and social status. They did have rights. They were not just property of their masters. Under Roman law, which Paul and his constituents would have no power to change, it's estimated that 85% of the population were in this category called bond servants. Some willingly sold themselves into temporary slavery as a bond servant to pay off debt but there was always an end in sight. 
Some sold themselves into slavery because it was to their advantage socially and as far as economically their jobs. What do I mean? Those who would have been bond servants in this day could have had dignified positions of tutors, professors, estate managers, bookkeepers, doctors, and artisans. Probably the context to which Paul writes here was the familial context of where servants were in the home as part of the family for different reasons. It was a familial structure, but they could have had very influential and important positions. Think about this. Paul is writing to bond servants and masters who were seated in the same church together, being read this very letter together. And we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ would completely alter the views of slavery and would be used the gospel of Jesus Christ to the abolition of slavery in this country and around the world. As people began to understand what Paul said, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We are one in Christ Jesus. And that is our new identity. And as the slavery of Paul's day would begin to be driven more and more out to where slaves were given more and more freedom and respect, bondservants in the household of faith as one in Christ, we by God's grace have seen that spread as well. However, statistics will tell you there are more slaves in the world today than at any other time in history. Most are children and women in human trafficking. But the gospel of Jesus Christ liberates those who are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say this quickly, that just because the Bible permits something does not mean the Bible prescribes something. Just because Paul's speaking to a particular context does not mean that Paul is endorsing what is happening. But I want you to see that the context is very different from our own racial past in this country. And lastly, say this before we actually read the text. Paul writes a letter to a man named Philemon. And Philemon has a runaway slave named Onesimus. And in this letter to Philemon, Paul says to, uh, to, to Philemon, receive Onesimus back the runaway slave, but receive him back not as your servant anymore, but as your brother in Christ. And oh, by the way, Paul says, whatever debts or hardship this incurs upon you to receive him back as your brother in Christ, I'll pay for that. I want to say all that to you as we start because I don't want your faith in any way to be hurt or for those who are critics of the Christian faith to look at a text like this and miss be misguided in saying to you that the Bible condones slavery. Now, with that in mind, I want us to look here at Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read together verses 5 through 9. Slaves, or again, what would be a better translation, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, 
but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your bondservants in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. O Holy Spirit, be our teacher in these few minutes together, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I think the way to understand this text today and apply it to ourselves is to see it in the terms of boss and employee, employer and employee, employer worker, or even more so, which I think is is, is drastically needed in our country today, is to understand the role of the authority and those who have to respond to the authority and to ask ourselves these questions. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ transform our workplace environment? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ... Now think about this. Here's Paul's letter where chapters 1, 2, and 3, and 4, Paul has been describing who we are in Christ, our union with Christ, the salvation and blessings of being united to Christ, and what it means to be the body of Christ. And so now he's taking that and applying it to first marriages, secondly to families, and now third, in our context, what would be the workplace? So the questions we have to ask... How does the gospel of Jesus Christ transform a school in which there are students and faculty, administrators and students, administrators and parents, authority and those who respond to authority? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ transform your practice? How does it transform your law firm? How does it transform your school? How does it transform your restaurant? How would Jesus run a business? How would Jesus respond to authority? That's what this text calls us to ask. How does the gospel apply to issues of customer service or wages or sick days or management or conflict or mutual care and relationships in the workplace? That's what Paul's getting at here. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ change the employer-employee or the coach and player relationship? How would a coach coach with their eyes fixed on Jesus? How would a player respond to the authority of a coach? How would we as civil servants or as, as civilians respond to the government that God has ordained, the authority? And how should government exercise that authority? How should we respond to the police officers that God has given to protect and serve? And how should the police officers use that authority? You see, this is where the rubber meets the road here. How would Jesus be as an employee? How would Jesus be as the employer? I think the only way that this is going to reach our heads and our hearts this morning is if we look past the people that God has placed before us, whether our 
authorities or whether those who report to us who are under our authority. If we look past them as the text tells us to do and look at Jesus. Did you notice how many times as God talks here through Paul to the church at Ephesus and to the church at First Presbyterian Church, have you seen how many times here it says God put those authorities there and how you respond to those authorities is responding to God himself. God, employers, put your employees or those who are subject to your authority, he put them under you and the way you treat them is by looking past them and seeing Jesus himself. Have you ever been in this situation where you're in a restaurant or something and you see a friend across the room and you wave and then somebody else right here thinks that you're waving at them so they wave and it's that kind of awkward thing and you're like, I'm not, I'm, talk, I'm looking past, I'm looking over there. Or you've been on the other end of that, right? Where somebody you see and they wave, it's you and you wave and I think, you think, I think I know them and you wave and then you realize, no, they're, they're looking past you. That's the image I want you to have. Employers, you're to look past your employees and see Jesus. And you're to ask yourself, how would Jesus treat those or how did Jesus treat those who were under his authority? Employees, you're to look past your boss, children past your parents, uh, athletes past your coach, and ask the question, how did Jesus respond to the authorities in his life? Just two points this morning. We want to look at how gospel-shaped attitudes and actions of those who are under authority first, and then secondly, gospel-shaped actions and attitudes of those who are in the authority. Why are we taking that order? Because that's how Paul does it here. He first talks to those who are under authority, and he says, here's how you live under authority as unto the Lord Jesus. Here's the attitude. Your attitude is this. You want to obey from your heart and submit from your heart, and work from your heart as unto the Lord, who is the true master, who is the true boss, who has set these authorities in place. Your heart longs to honor him as you honor the authorities that he has placed in your life. That's what Paul says here. We reverence, look at it with me, verses uh, 5, slaves or servants, obey your earthly matters with res- masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart as unto Christ. So in other words, we have such a deep love and respect and admiration for Jesus that we want to obey and submit to the authorities that he has put in our lives because we love the one true master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we reverence and obey as unto the Lord. We have deep honor and respect for all authorities in our life because they've been placed there by God. Now practically, in a world who despises authority, what does this look like? What's our attitude to look like? Here's what I think. I think we respect their God-given position We talk to them and about them with deep honor and respect as unto the Lord. Our tone, our word choice, 
it's, we ask the question, what reflects the heart of the master, Jesus? We give them the benefit of the doubt. We assume the best of their motives. We don't undermine their authority in any way. We don't gossip. We don't spread rumor. We don't promote division. We don't undermine their authority in any way. Now, this is for every context that God may call you to. This is the heart attitude. We want to protect their reputation. We want to publicly praise what we can praise about the authorities in our lives. And privately, we want to speak to them about things that we disagree with. We'll get to more of that later. We have the heart of David who said, when he could have taken King Saul's throne, far be it from me to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Trembling and fearful respect in our hearts to Jesus because of the authorities that he's put in our lives. And you want to please Christ and you want to represent Christ by honoring Christ by how you deal with the authorities in your life. How about our actions? What do our actions look like in this kind of context? Well, Paul says that we're going to work as hard as we can, submitting to their authority and leadership as if we're working for Jesus himself. I was joking with some friends uh, recently, and I said, you know, it's my philosophy. It's always been that uh, I should always put in a full quarter day's work, right? But that's sometimes kind of how we think. You know, I'm just going to do what it takes to get by. I don't like my job anyway. I don't respect my boss. I'm just going to do the bare minimum, clock in, clock out, get out of there. But what we're seeing here is Paul saying to the church, as Christians with pure hearts and sincere hearts that reverence Christ and reverence authority, we're going to work with everything we can and not cut corners and do the very best we can. The people with the highest integrity, the strongest work ethic. Why? Because we're not working for men or working for women. We're working for God. And our hearts swell with the reality that we can work as unto the Lord and give it our very best. The most dependable, the most trustworthy, the most honest, the most diligent, because Jesus is our boss. And we want to work our hardest for him. You notice Paul says, and don't do it. Don't do it when they're just watching. Do it because Jesus is always watching and you want to please him. I remember, you, you know, you're amazed by my many talents, right? I was in the band in high school, played the trumpet, and I was about, uh, if there were 15 chairs, I was just hanging on to chair number 14. I wasn't the worst, but I was just right there. And at the beginning of band practice, our, uh, our conductor would always go through and tune our instruments, making sure we were all in the same key, right? And uh, we had this ongoing thing we'd do just to drive him nuts. I was de deviant, this won't surprise you, but we would pull out our trumpet sides just enough to make the trumpet section off key. Uh, and so he'd be, he'd be playing that you know, middle C and he'd hear that note and mm, but over here he'd be like, eh. and so he would finally get so frustrated, he'd go to each section, he'd come to the trumpets, and right before he got to us, we'd fix our slides back, and it would be perfect. And he'd be like, okay, sounds good, let's try it again. And we'd pull our slides back out. It would drive him nuts. Uh, I'm sure I've repented of that, but here's the point. 
You don't do what's right because they're watching. You do what's right all the time because God is watching. Someone has said integrity is what you are or what you do when no one else sees. This is what Paul's saying here. We want to serve him because he's watching and because he rewards. Did you see it? If you're faithful every day to submit to the authorities and to work hard as unto the Lord, God's going to reward you for that. You know, by the way, that work was given in the garden pre-fall. Work is good. We were made to work. And just because the fall has altered work and tainted work and caused work to be with thorns and thistles and, and, and conflict and all sorts of problems, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to continue to work and subdue the new creation that God has given us. Work will be glorified then, but until then, God says to you, be faithful, and I'm going to reward you because I'm just that good. And think about this. This gives our work a whole new dignity and perspective and joy. Maybe you're thinking, I hate my job. But you know what? If you're faithful there, you're honoring Jesus. He's going to reward you. Maybe you think, my boss abuses her power. Or, or I don't like any of my coworkers. Or what I feel like I'm doing is not contributing to anything. What Paul says here, that when you work hard as unto the Lord, your job has incredible dignity because it's being done for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the master of everybody. Now, secondly, or let me just ask this first. What do you do if you disagree with the authority that God has placed in your lives? Now, the bond servants over time could have left the place where they were employed. That's always an option. You can leave your job. You can leave your church. If you don't like your elders and pastors, you can, you can leave and find something new. You have that freedom to do. But what if you're in a place and you don't respect the authority or you don't like your boss or you disagree with their decisions? How does the Christian respond in that situation? Obviously, if they're telling you to do something that directly violates God's word, that's when you say, I can't do that. I must obey God rather than men, as the apostles said. But what if it's just something you disagree with it, agree with, or it's not the way you would do it, or you don't like the way it's being done? Here's what I know from God's word. You don't gossip. You're not divisive. You don't undermine the authority. You don't spread rumors. You don't do what you can to try to thwart the leadership. There are appropriate ways to see change in society. You can get a new job. You can appeal to a board. You can go speak personally to the one that's an authority over you, but do so with respect and kindness and honor. There's lots of ways to go about this, but you don't make life difficult. You check your own heart and motives first. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Check your own heart first and ask, in my response to the authority in my life, what's really going on in my heart? And am I honoring Jesus by how I deal with the authority that God has placed in my life. In government, you can wait, you can vote, you can campaign, you can run for office, but you can't be mean. 
You can't be toxic. You can't be hateful. We're destroying our own country, and Christians can't be this way. We're destroying our own institutions, and Christians can't be this way. That's all I can spend on that one. Secondly, that's for those who are under authority and how they respond in gospel-like ways to the authority in their lives. What about those of you who are in authority? How do you respond with a gospel culture to those who submit to your authority, who are called to submit to your authority? Paul says it very simply. Look with the, at it again. And masters, treat your servants in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In the same way, you show reverence for those who report to you. You show honor to those who report to you. They're made in the image of God. God is their master, just like he's your master, and there is no difference between the two. When God looks at you, he sees the same, and he honors and respects each of you as made in the image of God, and he calls you to respond in honor and respect and care to those who work under you. And because we see people the same way God sees them. And because we see through people and see our God, who we understand is all of our master, we ask the question, how would God the Father treat us? How did Jesus the Son treat people when he was on earth? And that starts to revolutionize the way that we use our authority. We're not abusive. We're not intimidating. We're extraordinarily gracious, even willing at sometimes at personal cost to be misused and mistreated because we want to overwhelmingly show the grace and mercy of God. We're fair, we're just, we care. We're like Jesus, who was humble, who was gentle and lowly, who was always open to those who suffered. We treat people the way God has treated us. And by the way, your view of God, your view of the love of Jesus will directly transform the way or affect the way you treat others. If you think God is an angry ogre, if you think he's just a disciplinarian, if you think he's just an intimidating bully in the sky, you're going to treat people that way. But if your heart has been melted by the love of God, and you come face to face with the person and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to transform the way you treat those who report to you. Your Christ-centered heart will produce Christ-centered actions. You will be tender and kind. You will, be, uh, you will not be abusive. You will not be on a power trip. You will not lead from a positional point of view, but you will leave from a relational and loving and gracious point of view. You don't lord your authority over people, whether you're an elder or whether you're a boss or whether you're a parent, but you're gracious and kind and tender. How did Jesus treat those who were under him? He washed their feet. He met their needs. His heart was wide open with compassion and 
kindness. He was never demeaning. He was never belittling. He always dealt with people with thoughtfulness and kindness and gentleness. Think about it. The one who had the most authority and the one who had the most power was the one that throughout every page of Scripture deals with his people gently, kindly, graciously as a servant himself. This is the heart of Jesus. Ask yourself this question. Are my employees or those who respond to my authority, are they responding because of my position and they have no choice but to respond because their livelihood depends on it, because they're afraid of me? Or are they responding because of my high integrity and love and compassion and care for them? Are they responding out of fear or out of relationship? Ask yourself this question. Would I want to work for me? Ask yourself, if I were in the other person's shoes, how would I want to be treated? And this includes everybody. By the way, you are in authority over somebody at every stage in your life. Think about it. There's, I tell it this way. There's a, a, a trash truck that comes down my street, and they get our trash, and they get our uh, uh, yard debris, and uh, they come to, turning down our street. They start honking their horn. This is a trash truck. They start honking their horn. For a while, I thought, why in the world are these guys honking their horn when they come down our street? It's because my neighbor who lives across the street, who, if I understand it correctly, is not a Christian, he told them, when you come down my street, honk so I'll know you're here so I can bring you out uh, drinks and snacks. You know who's not doing that? The pastor across the street. <laughs> you know who's grumpy if they forget a piece of cra- uh, a trash? The pastor. You know who has the heart of God? The pagan across the street. How do you treat those who work for you? The refrigerator repairman came the other day. You can ask my, don't ask my wife about my heart when he came to tell me $250 to fix an ice maker. It's, it's abuse of, of power. It's ungodly. What wells up in our hearts because we have failed to reflect the heart of Jesus. Paul says, those of you who are in authority, look past those who report to you and look at Jesus, the one seated on the throne who is the authority. Remind yourself of the love of God. Remind yourself of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind yourself the way God treated people, the way Christ treats, uh, treated people and treats people and treat people in the same way. This only works, brothers and sisters is that the heart of Christ is more and more made manifest in us. You can't love and serve and be humble and honor those in authority over you or those who submit to your authority unless the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes more and more a reality in your own heart. I suspect that this week there's probably a lot of repentance that needs to take place. I've been working on this text for about five days. But I suspect there are those in authority who need to go to those who are under their authority and say, I've not treated you as King Jesus has treated me. I suspect that there are those who are to be submitting to the authorities above them who have said, I have not prayed for you. I have not respected you. 
I've not been kind to you in my word and actions. I've been a gossip. I've been divisive. I've been undermining. I haven't respected the authority that God has placed in my life in honor of King Jesus. I know it's true for me. It's already started. Let me just close in this way, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. There's a parable, Matthew 18, that reveals the real heart of God here and the heart of Jesus, the Son, the God-man made flesh. Matthew 18, Peter's like, how many times am I supposed to uh, forgive somebody that offends me? And Peter thinks he's doing good because he goes above and beyond what the rabbis would say. And he says, should I forgive him 70 times? He said, Lord Jesus, I've learned so much. And, and Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. Meaning there is no end to the forgiveness and love and mercy and grace of God. So Jesus tells a story. There was this rich king and, and he had a servant that owned him so much money, millions upon millions of dollars that he could never repay. And he was going to be thrown in jail to pay his debt, which would never help. He's not going to pay it there. And, and the man comes, the servant comes to the king and he says, King, please, I can't do anything about it. And, and, the, and, and I'll work it off, which he can't do. And the, the king says, I forgive your debts. I'll wipe them clean. Your debts are forgiven. That man who's been forgiven so much then leaves and he goes and finds a guy who owns him just a few pennies and he chokes him and he says, pay me back what you owe me and he throws him into prison and when the king hears about it, he is enraged. How can you, whom I've shown such amazing grace to, forgiven all of your debts, how can you not love and show grace and mercy to those who owe you so little. It shows the heart of God, doesn't it? Those who've been forgiven much, love much. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word for us today. May the Spirit transform our hearts by His grace and cause us to live it out. Let's pray together. Oh, Spirit, I pray that you would just do that. Give us an... Uh, an enlarged view of the, magne- uh, of, of the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. May we look past those who are over us and see Jesus and respond accordingly. And may we look past those who are under us and see Jesus and respond accordingly. Give us your heart and mind, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.